this is Death by DVD. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. And on this episode, we are going on a holiday by mistake. Are you the farmer? Shut up, I'll deal with this. We've gone on holiday by mistake. You are listening to Harry Scott Sullivan, your host, and with me... He loathes Russian plays filled with women staring out of windows, whining about ducks going to Moscow. It's Linus Fitness Center. No, the this week? The Linus Fitness Center. <laughs> I, I forgot your allocation. I feel terrible now. I forgot about it. Yeah, man. I, I've got to update all my uh, social medias to, in- to include that. Yeah. yeah, I got to go to the LinkedIn, change it up. It's a it's a, uh, full name. I guess it's your first name. The Middle Linus, last name Fitness Center, hyphenated. It's a bit like Mr. T. Yeah, you know. Mr. The. Cut out the jibber-jabber. Don't be babbling like a fool. Say what you got to say. That's all. Then shut your dang pow-hole. Yeah, I'm not good with names. I guess I could have come up with something better or a title for this show. But you are listening to Death by DVD, and if you understood that opening reference, you're probably English. We are going to be discussing uh, the Linus Fitness Center, the Linus Fitness Center's favorite movie. If you heard on our last episode, we have a new host that's joining me on Death by DVD, and we got trashed. It was an inebriation dedication. I think this episode more than likely should have been the inebriation dedication, and fuck it, it might as well be. But what better way to get to know somebody than discussing their favorite movie? And you, unlike me, who is a buffoon and cannot answer the question, you have a favorite movie. I would spend an hour discussing moods and tones and and the twilight years of my life and being a teenager and why this movie mattered to me and never answer the question. But it's aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Simply enough, it's aliens. Yeah, aliens is, uh, you know, it's up there. But, um, I mean... I've I've not gotten drunk to aliens quite as many times as I have to with Illinois. I think this is the the perfect inebriation dedication, and there's a great challenge people, diehard fans of this movie, take, which we were discussing before the show began. I don't think it's impossible. I I personally think I could get about halfway through it before I started getting sick. You've done done it though. Uh, I've I've done an extent of it. I've lost track as to how far I got on. And that kind of takes us perfectly into With Nail and I, because it's a movie you really lose track of. Watching it feels like an experience. It feels like a, a, a chore almost, but not a terrible one. I, I was really, really exasperated with all of this because you said it was your favorite movie, and I've never seen it before. I'd never once seen this movie. I thought it was a show. I thought it was a, a like a BBC miniseries. I really knew absolutely nothing about it. I knew who the actors were and that something, something, Alien 3 so when I sat down to watch it after I'd already said, hey, we should do this as an episode. So dialing it in, this is going to be the show, not having seen the movie. I was petrified, like, I'm going to hate this. This is terrible. And the movie doesn't begin very friendly. It doesn't have... Uh, it, it's a, it, it's an introduction that latches you on because it's a, because of its absurdity, but it's not very friendly to the average audience. And I was just like, oh, no. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I've now, I've watched it three times in a row since then. I, I've <laughs> become a convert overnight. It it It's just one of those, I think you're either going to get it or you're not movies. Because I've, I've encountered and I've uh, seen a lot of people that just don't have any connection and find it to be ludicrous and uh, compare it to, to the likes of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I can, I can really relate it to, to the Hunter S. Thompson story, the gonzo journalism, not the fucking... 
Johnny Depp film. But I, I don't think it's that much about depravity, and I think people miss that point and don't have the connective tissue, which seems to be a phrase I use a lot on this show, of what makes this movie so spectacular. Were you expecting it to uh, be about uh, people sitting around drinking cider and discussing butter? That's that's what I thought the country was like in all the books that I've read. I, I thought it was going to be more of a road movie, and I admittedly don't like road movies that much. I like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for what the movie is, and it's it's a detachment, I think, from the point of what Thompson was writing, but it's still fairly entertaining. And I like Easy Rider. I, well, I more than like it. I love Easy Rider. I think that's one of the best movies ever made. I think it's a fucking statement. It's a was world-changing. Easy Rider created a whole culture that maybe the world didn't need, but we, we definitely have. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I've, you know, you have a very specific way those movies go. It's usually two guys, and they get on the road, and there's some sort of metaphysical, or there's some sort of metaphorical life-changing bullshit that happens throughout. And there's, you know, Easy Rider, they die at the end of the movie. It's very upsetting, but it's the American dream, and it's reminiscent of the failures and the hopes. It's pretty much the exact same thing with With Nell and I, but the delivery and the way you're given it is is. It's more of a it's more of a hangout movie. Um, nothing all that drastic happens. So you just follow these characters through a few days, and uh, <laughs> they hang out and uh, get fucked up, <laughs> and uh, and then it ends. All the while, nothing happens. I think everything happens, though. And, Indeed, and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's what really hit me with the movie is. It's more lifelike. It, it's obviously yeah. a film, and it's an absurdist sort of thing. It, it's, it really reminds me a bit of um, Samuel Beckett, you know, Waiting for Godot. It's got that yep. everything and nothing going for it at once, but what's really... It, it, it's, it's lifelike. It's, it's really going back and, and realizing all these exchanges and these moments in your life from weeks or summers or years or relationships that just people die, people move on, you lose contact with them. And it's it's bizarre that you lose the good in it. You you rarely can see the good. You can remember times and eras of your life, and you remember and focus on the bad things. But with all bad, there's good. And with Nail and I, kind of focuses. Terrible things happen throughout the story, but you you are are given the good of, of it. It's and it's not so much good. I mean, it's reckless behavior. It's substance abuse. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens throughout the film. But what? you take out of it what you see out of these characters is maybe not the best of themselves, but the the best of the moment, the best of the time, the best of the era. Yeah, and above all, it's fucking funny, isn't it? Yeah, no, it it, it didn't even take a few seconds. Once the movie begins and you, you get a grasp of the situations, it's not like, you know, your sides are going to burst and your hands are on your knees laughing the entire time. It, it's brutally sardonic, but it's a fucking British movie. I think a lot of problems with, with people maybe not getting this movie is they don't get British humor. And, I mean, there definitely is a level of sarcasm to the to the UK and the British Isles that I don't think is available over here. And not like Ricky Gervais. I think that's people's most, like, like UK go-to of, like, no, I, I like British humor. I like Ricky Gervais. There's, there's a little bit more. There's there's maybe different levels of sarcasm and realism. The movie begins, I've used the word twice already, but it really begins absurdly because you don't quite understand until maybe the second time you see it or, or a little bit deeper into the movie that the lead character is having a bad time on drugs and that they're they're either coming down or they're getting 
the fear, they've smoked too much pot, and they've, they've got an anxiety attack. I'm in the middle of a bloody overdose. Oh, God. Oh. My heart's beating like a fuck clock. I feel dreadful. I feel really dreadful. So do I. So does everybody. Look at my tongue. Wearing a yellow sock. Sit down, for Christ's sakes. What's the matter with you? And they come home to... You don't know the character. You don't know what's wrong with him. You have an idea that he may be drunk. And the conversation they go on is, is just ridiculous. Something's living in the kitchen. They've got this, this awful fucking mess in the kitchen. Their, their habitat is almost completely unlivable. And it's like a fucking Laurel and Hardy sketch. These two go back and <laughs> forth with each other. Why don't you wash up occasionally like any other human being? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you call me inhumane? I didn't call you inhumane. You merely imagined it. Calm down. Right, you fucker. I'm going to do the washing up. No, no, you can't. It's impossible, I swear. I've looked into it. Listen to me, listen to me. There are things in there. There's a tea bag growing. You haven't slept in 60 hours. You're in no state to tackle it. Wait till the morning. We'll go in together. This is the morning. Stand aside. You don't understand. I think there may be something living in there. You're just sitting there like, what am I watching? What is this? What What are they fucking talking about? I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I like. I, I, I don't know how, how you guys are going to take it. But for me, it just reminded me of like every student house I've lived in. And basically, any time I've shared a house with like another guy, like it just devolves into that. It, even alone, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this point and uh, to the show a little bit later of, of relating to the characters. But that that very first scene when they're in the kitchen, it was just like, yeah, nope, that's it. That's exactly what the house looks like. That's, <laughs> I've lived in that house. I've been there many times. I think I shared a room with these guys before. In fact, I'm he I'm here right now. I think. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> the audience can't see all the the cans and shit behind me, but you sure can. It's it's not changed that much. I think there's a relative notion of familiarity that breathes throughout the movie. You're introduced to these characters very abruptly, and what I really like about that is that's fucking life. Everything in this movie, and the movie's based on um. It's uh, an unpublished novel uh, by the director Bruce Robinson. And it's about his life. It's about actual experiences in as what he calls and I don't know, very well may be the greatest decade of, of mankind. So much happened in the 1960s and it's the perfect setting for this story. But it, it's it's life. I mean, you're going from this guy's life and the way that you're you're projected with this movie, the introduction of these characters, it is incredibly abrupt. But within seconds of that, you start getting development to both of them and it's it's such a massive extreme development without any backstory you you get these brief little snippets of who these people are and for me it's just it's fucking perfect because we talk i we talk i rant all the time on this show about what i don't like about movies and it's really rare to get something to focus on what i like this is the sort of perfect development for a character. You don't need to know fuck all about them. It doesn't matter at all who they are. It's it's how they act, how they perceive themselves to be. And with both of these characters, with Nail and I, you get a perception of who they are immediately at the beginning of the movie. And that's all you need. And I feel you can place yourself immediately within those two characters. That's our introduction to with Nail is we get a character that is coming down off drugs, I, the lead character of this movie, we never learn their name, and we don't need to. Names aren't fucking important. It's just I, and this is his adventure with, with, with Nail. 
And we are introduced to him drunk. He's somewhat blitzed. They've run out of alcohol, and the only thing nearby is lighter fluid. So he fucking drinks it. And it's the you 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 should be worried. You're watching this grown man drink lighter fluid. Obviously, that's gonna kill you. He's going to die, and it turns immediately into a joke. You shouldn't mix your alcohols. That's ridiculous. Because he wants to drink antifreeze next. What have you done to them? I haven't touched them. Then why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. Wouldn't drink that if I Why not? Because Why not? I don't advise it. Even the wankers on the site wouldn't drink that. That's worse than meth. Nonsense. This is a far superior drink to meths. The wankers don't drink it because they can't afford it. Have we got any more? Liar. What's in your toolbox? And we have nothing. Sit down. Liar. You've got antifreeze. Bloody fool, you should never mix your drinks. <laughs> Every review I've read from an American is like, you know, it kind of reminds me of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Monty Python. And I just fucking hate that. I hate it. It 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 makes me mad and I have nothing to bitch about. It's just, I guess, the perception in such little depth with fucking British humor. It's not about like, oh, there's some keen joke about drinking lighter fluid. No, the prick is a, a horrible alcoholic. He probably would die if he can't drink, and the person the story is based on apparently, uh, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a failed actor, he made a couple of films, made a horror film, uh, acted along with Ian McKellen, but for the most part a complete and total failed actor, ran out of alcohol one day, was living with Bruce Robinson in the 1960s and drank lighter fluid, went blind for three to four days and got back on their feet and Went back about life, which is a can-do attitude I certainly appreciate. But when the first five minutes of a movie shows you these characters, I mean, I guess I can understand for lack of, of depth and better perception of stuff why you could compare it to Fear and Loathing in, in Las Vegas. Ralph Steedman did the um, the art for the film, so there's a, a even deeper connection between Hunter S. Thompson. But it's not about some vivacious anti-American. Like, I mean... Fear and Loathing isn't specifically anti-American in the first place, but the point of the fucking story is Hunter had to go do a motorcycle race and cover that shit, and then halfway through that, he had to go do, what was it, a National Republican meeting or an NRA conference or something like that, and his story sucked. It wasn't good, so when he got back to Woody Creek, he went, you know what would be funny? Is if I just wrote about all these drugs I did instead and said I did all these fucking drugs. None of it happened. That's what gonzo <laughs> journalism is. He covered the fucking convention and he covered the race and then he lied. Well, it's not necessarily a lie, but <laughs> he didn't do all of the, all of that. It's an exaggeration. It's a it's a story and that's the focal point. It's this the American dream is dying. Horatio Alger's wrong. There is no hope. The Republicans are coming for us. We're going to lose our rights and no one's going to care about it cuz we'll all be too stoned and and people miss that point. With Nail and I has nothing relative to it the only thing that could be a considerable comparison to both movies or stories rather is is this is the last last of the 60s the end of the quote-unquote greatest era of all time which did have a great deal of change from from the uk to the united states the vietnam war affected everyone kennedy being assassinated was monumental it was shocking something like that happening in the western world since since world war one no one knew what to do and then fuck get the beatles the rolling stones lsd biker culture in general like i was speaking about a little while ago with easy rider 
there's just so much that happened in the 1960s capturing all of it isn't the fucking point of the movie it's going on a holiday by mistake it's also kind of about the sort of hangover at the end of it like uh all that's happened and uh where'd you go from there and sometimes that's just life I think for me, experiencing the movie, it, a lot of it is you, you meet people, you have these amazing times, or maybe not so amazing times, and you, you don't think in the moment that it's going to end or that you're never going to see this person again, but sometimes things end just abruptly as they begin, and you move on, you move forward, you progress, but not everyone does. I think there's a duality in the reason we have such a, a drastic difference between both characters, not just because it's personal and semi-autobiographical, is sort of a yin and yang, looking at what happens when you don't try. The, the the character with Nail is brilliant, is an actor, and probably has some of the greatest untapped potential of all time, but they just talk a lot of shit. They never do it. They never act upon what they need to do. They just insult everyone else, maybe because they're afraid. You know, there's there's not a lot of clarity behind that, but there's no there's you have to take it personal. You don't need to have it fucking spelled out for you, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, like where I'm from, uh, Newport in South Wales, it's a it's a whole town of untapped potential. I know so many Withnalls, so many people uh, with so much talent uh, that uh, could never capitalize on it. That's a fucking terrible word, isn't it? Capitalize. I don't know what else you could say though, because you, you when you have it, you either have it and you do nothing with it, or you have it and you fight for it, and that's really what we have with with the push between the characters. But none of it's on screen, none of it's it's seen. From those very first moments, you get, I, I guess, levity maybe between these two characters of who they are and the difference are of them. And then at the end of the film, I finds out that he is is not only getting a role in a play, but it's the lead role, and he, he cuts off his hair, he changes his looks, and he he moves onward for progression in life. So you can only assume that that that's his backbone, that's his attitude, that he would... And throughout the film, he's narrating it, and at the very beginning, it shows his narration is from his journals, that he is a writer, he's been writing the whole time, and there's a, a, a comical scene we'll get to in a little while with another character where it's brought up that he's a writer, and... You, you you get these little subtle hints that he moves forward as to where with Nail is, is constantly getting fucked up on something or another. But while he's doing so, he's always talking of what he can do and what he will do. And then the inevitable hangover comes and he never quite moves on. He's always got to take one more step to get drunk again or inebriated to move to his, his greatness and never quite achieves it. And it's... I, I felt the end of the movie was... Uh, it's one you wish it never happened, but it's just so perfect. I, I I couldn't think of anything better. And really, in general, it's it's quite a perfect ending to a film and of any film. It's just miraculous, but it's so deeply bearing of who the character is and how beautiful and how great they actually are. And and it you it's just it. It's the end. You're never gonna see anything more. You're never gonna hear of them again. And the feeling is. It's uplifting, but man, it's fucking soul crushing at the same time because you just remember all the with nails and and eyes in your life. It it can be <laughs> vice versa because many times you're the with nail and the eyes move on, and it it's an interchangeable metaphor for misery and sorrow. But the thing about misery and sorrow is it's not always bad. You gotta have it. <laughs> it's usually uh pretty funny too. It honestly, we were talking about this on the the last episode we did, but. <laughs> 
you could do this as a, a very bizarre double feature with possession. <laughs> that yeah, yeah. You know, do this first. Or no, do possession first, because you're going to need something fucking, something light after that. And this isn't, I, I it's a comedy, certainly. Like, it, it, it's a comedy movie. But it's not like, that's not a good way to ever introduce somebody into this by telling them it's a comedy. Oh. That may, I mean, maybe absurdist comedy, but that's just fucking throwing buzzwords around that really don't mean anything it, it's kind of sort of slice of life tragic comic drama sort of thing i don't know i mean adam sandler's not going to turn up um no one's going to show you their ass yeah my partner's got a really good idea for making dolls his name's presuming ed it's just to give him the idea she got a doll on christmas what pisses itself really yeah then you got to change its jewels for it Sorrible, really, but they like that, the little girls. So we're going to make one that shits itself as well. Shits itself? He's an expert. He's building the prototype now. As we further progress through the movie, you, 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 as I've already talked about with Neil and I, you get these characters that develop the relationship between our leads even more, and, and Monty, I think, is maybe one of the most depressing things in the movie. And he's one of the reasons I don't ever want to introduce this as a comedy to someone because I don't – you laugh at him quite a bit through the film, but I feel a little wrong laughing at him. I, I, once I saw the movie, I just kind of sat there feeling a bit of shame of, of laughing at this guy, and he definitely is the butt of many jokes, pun intended. <laughs> it's not so much hysterical as it is hysteria that you're dealing with this absolute anxiety attack of situations, and they continuously become – more engrossed in terrible situations and anxiety, but it's just fucking life, and it's all kind of funny. And if you can go back and look at the worst situations of your life now, I'm sure there's got to be some humor in it, and, and it might be very dark and nasty to laugh at, but if you can't laugh and smile, and if you can't remember anything good, well, then you didn't, there's no point in it. There's no point in doing anything at all. And I mean, I'm not saying go fucking kill yourself um, or your life is pointless. But if you can't reminisce on on how awful and look back, even in the most awkward situations, uh, like the Uncle Monty situation, and find something out of it, which I don't know what else to call it outside of a ordeal. Once this <laughs> character is introduced, he becomes a great ordeal. Because that's, I guess we've neglected to, to bring up the fucking plot of this movie. You've got two unemployed British actors in 1969 that go on an unintentional holiday. They're just swarmed with their life and the decay and unwellness, pretty much, of what life is and what they've become. And not working, not having roles, they've fallen into each other and each other's behaviors. And with Nails, a raging alcoholic. So anyone that would spend a lot of time with him, I'm sure, would fall into a very hazardous ritual of drinking constantly their only friend that visits them is a drug dealer so on top of that you know what else are you going to do drugs and drinking so they go on a holiday they con with nails uncle monty which you don't find out until the middle of the movie exactly what the con is and i won't give that away quite yet into using his cottage out in the country and that's it they they that's the movie that's what happens and i'm sure that sounds boring but it's fucking not. It's it's. I, I, there's no way of describing it. It sounds stupid trying to describe the movie. I feel dumb trying to describe it with <laughs> Nail and I is like it's just it's a thing. It's a force that you have to experience yourself. And if you don't get it, you don't get it. There's no. Did I miss something? You just didn't get it. It didn't didn't do anything for you, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. That's fine. I remember like watching it growing up, like 
me and my friends never even really like viewed these characters as alcoholics particularly it's just you know if you have nothing to do that's just kind of what you do in britain because there's nothing else to do until he drinks the lighter fluid i wouldn't have you know i would have just figured you know, going on a bender because that, that seems to be the point and the the abruptness of how the movie begins is this is who they are they're very dramatic people they're over the top they're I, I, I don't like the word, the term foppish, but with nails, definitely a bit foppish. And he dresses like a dandy. Um, I mean, it's not <laughs> even so much like mods. I guess you could say I dresses a bit much, much more like a mod, but with nail has that early 1960s when the Beatles just came out, fucking Seinfeld puffy shirt look about him. And he's, uh, you know, he's like a Lord Byron type. Fucking, <laughs> he's like Truman Capote. <laughs> he's just a really catty, uh, audacious, fucking wild drunk. But the second he runs out of alcohol, the prick drinks lighter fluid. So that's that to me was the establishment of this character. Of he is, uh, what what did Salvador Dali say? I don't do drugs. I am drugs. He is drugs. He is a force. And and progressively with that, when the character Danny is introduced, he he challenges this drug dealer, and it's it's. I, it's so funny. I, in my head before we did the show, I was like, man, there's so much stuff I want to talk about, and there's so many points I want to talk about. And then as I'm, I'm describing and talking about the movie, I really feel silly doing it, and uh, I, I, I rarely praise something this heavily on a show, but trying to describe how great what I what I felt, what I experienced was, just seems really fucking um, <laughs> silly. Like it, it seems like I'm doing such a deep injustice to the movie while trying to hype it at the same time. But this character isn't like a drug dealer. It, it's an experience itself, and, and Ralph Brown doesn't look like this in real life. And when he is presented on screen in tight velour pants with long, curly hair, he's got this slow, crazy voice. Have you seen Wayne's World 2? Is it Wayne's World? It's one of the Wayne's It's World. Wayne's World 2. It's, it's totally intentional. There's an interview with him on the projection booth. Um yeah, they called him in, they'd sent him the script, and uh, he was sort of reading it in the cadence of that character, thinking, uh, is that what they're going for? And it totally was. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's remarkable seeing that first and then experiencing this movie. It, it gives me such a deeper appreciation for Wayne's World that it really makes me enjoy that movie. I've not seen fucking Wayne's World or Wayne's World 2 in 20 years, but it makes me enjoy it. Some of his lines in Wayne's World 2 are fucking exceptional. <laughs> I have to ask you, didn't you think it was a trifle unnecessary to see the crack in the Indian's bottom? Yes, absolutely! I had the same dream. Poetry. What? And that's what this this introduction is. These characters are are extravagant, and they're not... They're fictitious in the sense of what you're watching, but it, it to me, I guess it's the life both of us have lived. I easily can. I've met a thousand Dannys. I've met a thousand with nails. I am with nail. I've met a thousand eyes, and I am I. It continues and perpetuates as life goes on. And this character's introduction, all of this is what, like nine, ten minutes into the movie, you get this cavalcade of these incredibly rich characters, and the cast isn't very large. It's just a few people, and when when they're presented to you. I mean, it's very stage play-like. They they take absolutely everything over. You're not looking at the set. You're not looking at anything else. You're following Ralph Brown's character, Danny. He's just like an exotic animal that's been introduced to you for the first time, and you're just bewildered by his behavior and who he is and the bizarre shit that comes out of his mouth. And every single <laughs> line of dialogue is just 
it's perfect. I, I it, it's people talk about how witty and quick and clever Quentin Tarantino dialogue is. Fuck you. With Nail and I, that's the fucking pinnacle and the top for me now of, of witty and quirky dialogue. Why don't you give him a call? What for? Ask him about his house. You want me to call what's his name and ask him about his house? Why not? All right, what's his number? I have no idea. I've never met him. Well, neither have I. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, he fucks asses. He fucks asses. Maybe he fucks asses. Monty has invited us for drinks. Balls to Monty, we're getting out. Balls to Monty? I was spent an hour flattering the bug up. I've been called upon. What fucker said that? What's your name, Mac? Fuck! I have a heart condition. If you hit me, it's murder. My wife is having a baby. You can stuff it up your ass for nothing and fuck off while you're doing it. Monty, Monty, Monty! Monty, you terrible cunt! Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Get in the back of the van! Where exactly have you two been? Holiday in the countryside. The old order changeth, yielding place to new. And God fulfills himself in many ways. And soon, I suppose... I shall be swept away by some vulgar little tumour. Oh, my boys. My boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour. And here we are, we three. Perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. We got Richard Griffiths playing Monty, and our, our most people are going to know who Richard Griffiths is from the the Harry Potter series. He plays the dickhead uncle, the one that keeps Harry locked in a fucking closet or whatever. the The character is I don't want to say he's a satire, but it it really I guess could be taken as a offensive stereotype of a homosexual man, but. Again, nothing's intentional in the movie. Like, I want to stress, there's no fucking politics. It's not some statement. It's not making fun of everyone. He's Hmm. an unfortunate person because of his sorrow and and his inability to be himself. It has nothing to do with his sexuality. Oh, yeah, quite. He's, I mean, he's a guy that's sort of past his prime, which uh, is kind of worrying because at the time they made the film, he was the same age as me. Um, But... uh, uh, yeah and he's he's kind of full of regret and and he's and plus he's not allowed to be himself because of the restrictions of the time he he has a, a really beautiful quote uh a line of dialogue rather in the movie and i'm i'm, I'm paraphrasing i'm not going to get it right and it's it's when he's introduced they they go over they have this idea with nail pukes all over eyes boots because he fucking drank lighter fluid so i has to perfume them and they go out to a pub where he's called a ponce and made fun of and they have to get out of there they come up with the idea to call uncle monty to use his cabin and you meet the character Monty, they go over for drinks and while he's gotten a little inebriated he says something to the effect of like you know, there's a time in everyone's life where they realize they're not going to play the Dane. And out of all, I mean, because he says a lot of ridiculous stuff. He's talking about fucking carrots and making a lot of, of sexual innuendos. But when he says that... Do you like vegetables? 
I've always been fond of root crops, but I only started to grow last summer. I happen to think the cauliflower more beautiful than the rose. Chin Chin. Do you grow? Geraniums. Oh, you little traitors. I think the carrot infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. Mm. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes for the bees. There is, you will agree, certain je ne sais quoi, un very special about a firm young carrot. To me, it was the clear view of the character of, like, no matter what, all, it, sexuality has a big play with who his character is and the plot of the movie and what's going to happen in the, the following sequences. But all he was was somebody that, just like with Nail, just like I tried. And you, that's the, the shame of life, though, and that's the shame of everything. You can try so hard, and it doesn't always quite work out, does it? Nothing, nothing always comes... Just because you try doesn't mean it's going to be successful. And because of, of his sexuality, he has, for himself and in his own mind, lost the, the youth of his life. And it's all just... It's not so much a euphemism, but it's all just a play at, at what happens. You're looking at these characters that we're going to be running with through the movie, and I feel with the introduction of Ralph Brown's Danny and Richard Griffith's Monty, you almost get to see the options that you are going to have at the end of the movie, that, that Monty is very sorrowful, and he's the butt of many jokes, but it's because he... He, he's like with Nail. He could talk. He could say he could do things, and that's what he did most of his life. He was very triumphant talking about it. He's wealthy, and that's mm. their, their relatives. You get a vibe the entire time that with Nail comes from money. Yeah, it's inherited wealth. So they could do anything, and that, that's the, the sort of point of it, I guess, is that he's the rich can talk, and they can waste their money, and they can waste their lives, but does it ever really matter until... You focus on it. I don't know. I'm fucking rambling. <laughs> um. Oh, well, no, you, you're sort of onto something there. I think it's like, uh, well, the, like rich people can like can get to a point in their life and be like fucking fed up and uh, full of regret, the same as uh, anybody else. But they know. I think there's the the stark difference between the character I is he's not rich and he's achieving all these things and both Monty and with nail are a bit jealous of him yep. and, and they treat him haphazardly. They treat him with a bit of anguish and, and are shitty to him pretty much just because he has a success. I mean, I wouldn't say shitty like with nail isn't a shitty person. Monty is, there's a sequence where Monty's a bit rude to him, but it's, he tries harder and I don't, I, it, it's, it's, it's pitting things. Whoa. against. But it's like, like, like Monty's been like you know fed a lot of bullshit by Withnall, which leads him into that situation. Oh yeah, I mean I didn't want to quite give that away. Yeah, yeah. Yet because it's just <laughs> it's it's the <laughs> plus it's, to me, it's uh, one of the best parts. Just just to sort of like muddy the water on uh you know I I sort of like Monty love, um because I do love the character and I think there's like a lot of pathos in that performance like uh and it, and he's not just a figure of fun like i mean you know it's it's i mean it's you're sort of laughing at him because the situation is slightly ridiculous but i mean you know there's a lot of sympathy for him by the end as well but uh counterpoint to that is he was based on uh franco zeffirelli the movie director because uh bruce robinson was in uh the 70s version of romeo and juliet and uh, pretty much had the same experience that I had with Zeffirelli. 
And uh, the quote, are you a sponge or a stone, is uh, directly from Zephyrly. my experience watching this movie I, I i was really you know you'd said on the inebriation dedication or introduction episode this is your favorite movie so i was like all right we really got to pay attention no fucking around don't sit with your phone i didn't even drink i didn't have a drink for the very first time i watched this ignorantly enough so i watched this movie well i will admit i was i was pretty high smoking a lot of <laughs> weed watch it, which is a, a mindset you don't have to drink to watch this movie you can take the danny route and you can get fucking high uh, as high as you possibly could and I, I, I felt, I, I said this at the beginning, but I was fucking petrified. I'm just sitting there, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking it in. I'm getting it. And finally, when we get to the Monty character, it, I guess he is what kind of made me realize, oh, oh, I get it. It's, uh, oh, okay, I know what we're getting into here. Because absolutely everything, it's like the, the Austin Powers dick joke. Where the <laughs> they keep saying different types of words for penis as this dick-shaped thing appears on the screen over and over and over again, and it's it's nowhere near that level of redundancy. Colonel, you better take a look at this radar. What is it, son? I don't know, sir, but it looks like a giant dick. Yeah. Take a look out of starboard. Oh my god, it looks like a huge... Pecker! Oh, where? Wait, that's not a woodpecker, it looks like someone's... Private! We have reports of an unidentified flying object! It is a long, smooth shaft, complete with two balls! What is that? That looks just like an enormous... Wang, pay attention. I was distracted by that enormous flying... Willie. Yeah, what's that? Well, it looks like a giant. Johnson. Yes, sir. Get on the horn to British intelligence but and let them once know But once I guess I got the pattern, I w I, it finally hit me of, oh, I'm supposed to enjoy this. And I, I had this, like, fear the entire time of, well, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to enjoy it. And, and it just, it really seems that, I don't know, I think people are expecting something out of it. And, and it hit me at that point, oh, there's, there's nothing to expect. This is a ride. And it, it, it really, going back to my fucking Easy Rider rant, there's there's huge separations and drastic differences between this and, and Hopper's Easy Rider, but the, the point of both of those stories at its core, you've got, of course, the, the all the shit I talked about, Horatio Alger, the death of the American dream. You look at the 60s and you just kind of focus on the end of that and, and you look at who these people are. At th at that point of the movie, I kind of realized that it's it's just like Wyatt and Captain America. You you don't need to know anything. You don't need to have a pretense with what you're going on that you're you're going to get into trouble. But it's it's worth it. It's the it's the lesson of the fucking day. Is the trouble sometimes is worth it? Yeah, just through a British lens of uh, you know we live on this fucking soggy island of fucking hate and misery and uh everything's moldy everyone's miserable uh but you know we just get drunk and get on with it although that said it's fucking sweltering at the moment we've got some crazy like uh global warming shit going on yeah, over here in the united states as well we are turning into richard stanley's hardware as the days fucking continue uh 
Can we call it Richard Stanley's Hardware anymore after you got cancelled? Uh, yes, yeah, you're correct. Sorry, Hardware, not Richard Stanley's Hardware. We can't say that anymore. Just, um, I, I mean, like, although it's set in the 60s and made in the 80s, I think, uh, the movie is a pretty good representation of how fucking miserable the UK can feel most of the time, to be honest. It's set in Camden Town. Camden Town is still a bit of a shithole, to be honest. It's uh, more of a gentrified shithole than it probably was back then. But, um, yeah. You gotta tell us where Camden Town is for everyone that's not in the UK. It's, it's, it's fucking London, isn't it? That's what makes, to me, I, I think the perfect... I keep talking about how the beginning of the movie's perfect, but you know what? Sometimes fucking things are just perfect, and you have to appreciate it. You're introduced to this atmosphere and this environment, and when you're over here, you have this... It's like, like Paris, all, every place that's not fucking America. You have this grand idea. Even when you've not been to New York City or, or Los Angeles or Hollywood, you've got these really beautiful pictures of it, and I think most Americans have a very specific image of England where there's these red little telephone booths everywhere and everyone's prim and proper and they have a fucking cup of tea in their hands all the time and you know you've got like how the queen wears those really the, the little button hats and, and she wears those little blue and, and prim and proper dresses all the time and everything's immaculate that's the the image that everyone in England is polite and they're walking around and they've got their pinky out and everything's perfect and it's just like absolutely everywhere else it, it's just a fucking place there's, there's nothing different. The people just talk a little different. That's that's all it is. And what makes it unique itself is that the British Isles are, are the wettest fucking places on the planet. It just <laughs> rains. Everything here is fucking damp. I'm going to... Working in a sort of... Sh it's almost a shameless pl plug, but I'd be plugging something that's sold out anyway. But um, but my, my grindcore band, Atomsk, we've got, a, we've, we've got an album called Every Room in Britain. Uh, it's named after um, uh, one time <laughs> the guy uh, that runs our practice room, he came in really stoned and like our fucking practice room is like a cave and it was particularly bad. There was like fucking pools of water, like streams coming down from the fucking roof. Everything was like fucking black and fucking clammy. And we're like, oh man, can you sort this fucking damp out? And he's like... What do you mean, fucking, fucking damp? Every room in Britain's damp. And he's fucking right. And it's winter. I think that's a, a, a funny point of the movie, is that they go on holiday by accident in the middle of fucking winter. The one time you'd, you'd never want to go on holiday. And I keep nagging at this point. And it's really what I, I took from the movie is, is it's just fucking life, isn't it? That's just how it is. It's, it's nothing's ever, nothing fucking goes right. You can sit and plan meticulously to every T and make sure everything is perfect. It's not going to go that way. It's not going to fucking happen that way. Even today, we sat down to record and there's a bunch of fucking problems and it happens. You, you override them or you don't. And that's the, the yin and yang of Withnail and Eyes is you look at them at the beginning of the film. He's not really dealing with anything. He's, he's, or I is, is very unhappy with his life and he's kind of giving in 
to his environment. He's becoming more like with Nail. He's not he's not progressing and moving forward. And when they go on this holiday, I you you can kind of look at both characters and and look at your soul and look at yourself. Are you progressing? Are you moving forward? Are you just kind of laying in your own fucking sick? Are you just covered in fucking piss? A raw potato, the only thing to pass your lips in the last 60 hours. I mean, what are you doing with life? And you you can push for it. And Monty, too. And it's it's in, in this day and age, it's hard to talk about a character like that, especially as, as a, a cis, white, straight male. I don't want to say hmm. anything that's, that's going over boundaries or lines. The character's sexuality certainly plays a massive part into who he is and what the character is. But as a, a human himself, with especially when he gets drunk, Uncle Monty reveals quite a bit about his life and the similarities he has to Withnail. That he just he wanted to do a lot and he had the potential to do a lot, but did he do it? Uh, <laughs> and here's a weird fucking segue into George A. Ramiro as usual. A little movie called Night Rider. Chasing the Dragon, Ed Harris. That's the fucking focal point of that movie entirely. You gotta do or you're going to die. But unfortunately, sometimes when you do it, you also die. And it's not, in, in, the, in the sense of that movie, it is an actual physical death. In this movie, it, it's a metaphorical death. It's a friendship, it's a relationship, it's it's love. Just I mean, and, and I truly think these two characters love one another, but... Most people's idea of love is a romantic thing, and it's not. Oh, it's just not love. Love most of the time isn't romantic, and most people that think that they have some sort of romantic love, it's infatuation. True love is is the ability to see past the fucking wallowing filth and all the bullshit, and to unconditionally care for someone. And you you are given a, a true perception of unconditional care between these two people. They don't seem to like each other that much, but they fucking love each other. You don't have to to like somebody to love them. <laughs> That's certainly my experience of friendships, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean like on a familial aspect. You certainly don't have to like or fucking love your family, but sometimes you just, you have these people in your life and they're there. And what do you do? You can't... Fucking can't kill them. <laughs> you can't just can't go kill someone and get rid of them. You have to fucking live with it, and you've got a roommate or a, sometimes it's a significant other. You know, you it, it's a weird, wild fucking world. And the the, the Uncle Monty character, I think, really is he he's such a weird piece of the pie when it comes into the movie. And the whole plot of the movie goes from the the whole plot and point of the movie changes from this road movie that you're 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 expecting. Okay. Because at this point, they've already drank a great deal of alcohol. There, There's a, a, a drinking game that goes along with this that we already talked about at the beginning of the show. And by this point in the movie, I think you're already going to be on, like, like 15 minutes in, your 14th or 15th actual, like, like real drink. Like, scotches, uh, <laughs> a full pint at this point, a couple different shots. And, and you get this character, and the dynamic completely opens up, and you realize that you're getting into... I, the, the 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 layering of the comedy is is like it's like Marx Brothers, you know. It it really goes into all these different territories and becomes really complicated. And you start moving into almost slapstick directions with stuff. The uh, the props that are introduced, you get a fucking double barrel shotgun. You've got maybe a villainous, we'd call them rednecks out here. That is a farmer 
that might be causing them damage. All of these different things are, are, are introduced when you get the Uncle Monty character, and I really think it's a, it's a full-tilt boogie at that point. You really take the movie into a different stratosphere. That was uh, that character's the poacher that they meet in the, uh, in the pub, who apparently was off-his-face drunk during that scene with the eels down his trousers. I think uh, the the interest in uh, dichotomy with Monty is, uh, like I said, he's he's based on um, Bruce Robinson's uh, experiences with Franco Zeffirelli, where he's found himself in in a similar situation, uh, which you know, a modern day uh, equivalent is uh, a bit Kevin Spacey or a Brian Singer. Well, I guess now we can kind of unveil the, the Uncle Monty subplot. I don't know why I've held it with secrecy, but there's so much to talk about with this movie. And it, it's funny, it, it happens a lot on episodes of Death by DVD, but I will have something stern in my head that I'm going to discuss these points and I'm going to talk about it. And once you open up and begin discussing it, it's just one of those things of, I don't, I don't know what to do with episodes that I, I can't control my point, but that exasperatingly is with Nail and I. There is no point to control, and there's no point to any of it outside of the experience. So this itself, you're just getting... You know, I'm I'm completely new to this. I saw this uh, two days ago for the very first time, and since then, the only other movie I've actually watched was Liquid Satan by John Carpenter. I think that would have been a better title. I'm going to call it Liquid Satan until the day I die. Prince of Darkness sounds like a fucking <laughs> Dio record. It's fine, like, it sounds cool, but Liquid Satan, that's so much better. I watched that, and I thought I needed, like, a palate cleanser, like, I needed to to get out of Withnail and I, and I watched it again the next night, and I was just wrong. There is no palate cleanser. Withnail and I doesn't, it doesn't need a chaser. It's fucking perfect as it is, and it's it's bizarre, the, the watchability. The, the movie drastically changes, and we're going to unveil to you the Uncle Monty plot, I guess. But the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie seems like a different world, and then you move to a further different world, and then by the end of the movie, it doesn't even seem like you've been watching the same thing. It seems like how I, I mistakenly... Mistakenly? How I mistakenly thought it was a miniseries or a series itself. It really seems like you've been watching it for three or four days, or or, or rather, the movie I believe takes place in the point of of three weeks or something like that, and it feels like it. You get to the end of the film, and it almost seems justifiable to restart it. It's like, oh no, it's a completely different movie. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You get to the Uncle Monty part, and you learn that he is a homosexual. And the first time you watch the movie, I I I, I kind of strongly suggest this watch with nail and i then fucking watch it sober don't have a drink at all watch the movie and then watch it immediately afterward and start drinking and (laughs) everything kind of it's not the alcohol it's just more fun that way everything kind of comes to you and you start realizing the characters and the depth of them and what they stand for even more and yeah he's gay what does that have to fucking do anything who cares people are gay it shouldn't have anything to do with it Unless you're a rotten fucking prick and the only way that you could stay at the cottage is by telling your gay uncle that your best friend is also gay and wants to have sex with you. <laughs> but you never tell your best friend that. And that opens up the rest of the movie to this, this 
it's like a fucking ballet. It's like an opera. It, it, it rises and falls, and then it gets this triumphant pink, and then it just kind of quietly fades away. That's that's terrible. It's not an opera. It's a fucking acid trip without... It's uh, it's watching an acid trip, I guess. I mean, I, I've, I've never... Ex- you hear these hippies and fucking wooks tell stories about doing LSD, and it's always the same thing. Like, I was at a music festival. We were out in a fucking wet field covered in mud. I tripped balls. It was fucking great. And you're thinking, like, it, you were wet and Fuck, that sounds terrible. That sounds, that sounds like sounds like the worst fucking time you've ever had in your life. And this prick's telling you how beautiful and how great and, and transcendental all of this shit was and how you have to do it too. And you watch this movie and it's a bunch of fucking pricks wet and having a miserable fucking time. Mm. And by the time you get to the end and you get that last Danny Brown speech and Hamlet, mm. just the ending of this movie's fucking gorgeous. Mm. It really is like a whole trip that you've taken it and you started to have the wiggles and everything was great and then the peak sets in and then you get the fear and then mm. you freak the fuck out and you got wet in a fucking field and it was remarkable. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, the situation between Monty and I, it's like a sort of balletic farce because, I mean, you can kind of guess what's going on before it's revealed. But the way it unfolds is just, it's, it's you know, it's it's almost like, like later on with uh, with Hamlet, it's almost like sort of Shakespearean. But um, going back to what I said about um, uh, Monty being based on Zeffirelli, but that but that's how like sort of even-handed he is. Bruce Robinson is with the characters. Like he had this guy try and you know, well, do stuff to him, but he still writes the character based on him as this really sympathetic character with a lot of regret and. Uh, and a lot of pathos. There you go. The character is so miserable, you can't help but relate to it. And I, I, that's what struck me with this movie is absolutely everybody, even the side characters, have a bit of relatability. But Monty was, was remarkable in that sense because it doesn't matter what your sexuality is. There's always something about yourself that you don't want other people to know. There's always something you don't present to the outside world and you look at him and immediately, I didn't. I'm a dullard, so I didn't catch this at the at the first part of the movie. They 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 visit him and they're having a drink, and with Nail says, "I've got to talk to you privately." And they bring up something about, and again, this might lay into uh, you know British culture. They bring up what school he went to, <laughs> and I I'm, I'm assuming that within that. There was a, a, a gay reference. So, oh, that's a gay. No, no, no. Like that's that. that's completely a class reference. When that when when Monty says, "Oh, you went to the other place," or "Oh, you went to Eton," that's that's uh, that's where all of our um, government went. Oh, so that's why he's so mad when he says, "Why did you? What's all that Eton stuff?" Because he's just a, a working class kind of regular guy, and that's the big difference with with Nail and I. With Nail has come from a life he didn't need to try for. He could have done anything. He could have just been, and he chose to rebel, rage against the machine, if you will. He can't enjoy it. There's, It's just fucking miserable. He was given everything, and the one thing he wants to achieve, he just can't seem to do. But it's not like... It's it's like anti-Shakespeare. He's not trying to do it. He wants it, but he's not even fucking reaching for it. Well, maybe it's exactly like Shakespeare, like Hamlet. Maybe he's hesitating. But at the same time, it was it was projected onto Hamlet. None of it was, I, I want to be the fucking prince of Denmark. Like, he didn't set out for all of this to happen. It was a situation and events that led to 
it being laid upon him. But you could take it that Hamlet's like, I mean, he he's in that position of uh, privilege. Like some fucker kills his dad. His dad turns up as a ghost and says, fucking sort it out for me. I mean, how many people get a ghost telling them to fucking, you know, like... <laughs> To, to solve the murder of of their own dad and like say fucking crack on and he he fannies about and then he kills a bunch of other people and his girlfriend goes mad and yada 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 i mean there's the the real difference between it is is there was no ghost there was nothing for withnail he wanted to he says at some point um once they get to the cottage him and i are having a conversation and he states that his family hates him being on stage and i says back well they must love your career then because you're <laughs> never on stage are you yeah, absolutely brutal. Fucking really goes for the throat with that one. But that again is is deep character development onto who he is. He talks about everything. He's a big proudful rooster, and he crows, and he can quote, and he knows everything. And this is where I really relate to him. He can talk about all the movies. He can talk about everything. He knows all the facts, and he can talk over other people, and he can sure drink more than other people, but what the fuck does he do? <laughs> and I, I relate deeply to that, especially with this show. I mean, I, 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 I have trouble sometimes dealing with Death by DVD because, and I, I brought this up on my whole uh, fuck the teachers rant. People that teach can't do. That's a saying. That's not me. That's a saying that I'm quoting. But it sticks in your head. It really gets into your jaw that you, you can talk about shit, but can you do it? Can you act? Can you make a movie? Can you make a record? Can you do all the shit that you critique? And uh, you know, I'm not going to get in a fucking psychoanalyst with myself and go too deep into things, but you you look at that and you look at what the character of Withnail is and that's that's what you're what you're dealing with. But he can do it. You're never and that's really the glory of of finishing this movie and watching it once more immediately because at the end of the film you're shown yeah no he he can do it he he can do everything he could have gotten that fucking cigar commercial he really had the potential to be uh you know on the waterfront motherfucking Marlon Brando mm. I could have been a contender that that sort of bullshit you don't understand I could have had class I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. And it it seems it it really has to be a translation point when you you encounter the rogue person that that doesn't really have a relation to this movie. And that's really the only thing I can come upon because it's it's like. I know it's an opinion-based thing, and, and what we're doing is an opinion-based thing, but I'll get a little ballsy here. The film is shot fucking weirdly great for a guy that has never fucking shot a movie before. And in fact, on the first day, Bruce Robinson said, he was, he was sitting on a crane, and he called everyone to attention and said, look, I'm going to fuck up. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I have no idea what I'm doing. Please work with me. Just bear with me. And it, it, the honesty, because he is I. He's the fucking character I. It shows through. And it's it's unique itself, because when you get to the end of the movie, it's kind of fitting. Like, well, yeah, this is a movie that I would direct, isn't it? It really suits uh, the perception, but it's so open. There is no positivity. There is no negativity. You're given everything together. You're shown the good, the bad, the ugly, every sorrowful piece of life, but... It, as I'm repeating myself, sometimes you can look back. Something could be the fucking most traumatic experience of your life. 
just the worst thing you've ever gone through. Just uh, a breakup, a breakup with a friend, uh, a relative dying, somebody you know dying, anything, a pet dying, a car accident, doesn't fucking matter what it is. You could have lost your favorite pen. You go through this extravagant deal of emotion, and years later you look at that situation and it's a little funny. Or you found a good memory within all of those bad things. All of it's encapsulated in this like really rough cultural pill, I guess. And and I keep saying I guess because it didn't affect me that way. I didn't look at it and go, well, it's very British. <laughs> I can't relate to it because it's not, not my culture. Because I don't feel like come from a culture. I'm an American, and I don't feel we have a specific culture. I mean... There are people that live in the Appalachian Valley that have storied cultures of hunting and bear skinning and, and mule running or all sorts of weird shit. There are cowboys and people in Colorado and Arizona that come from rich, storied Americana. I'm just a fucking guy from a fucking place, and I'm from this country, and there's nothing about it. It's emotion. It, it's looking at... It's not so much suffering, but isn't that all it is? And <laughs> I mean, life. I don't want to be like Morrissey. Life <laughs> is suffering, but I mean, it kind of fucking. You're born to die. Yeah, your country is only fucking three hundred years old, mate. You haven't even got fucking Shakespeare or nothing. <laughs> or healthcare. Maybe we we'll get that when we turn six hundred. Or reproductive rights anymore. <laughs> I guess get a lot I mean I don't know I keep bounding back and forth with this point and it, I don't think it's doing anything I don't think there's a volley between it that it really comes down to the characters and when they get to the cottage that that's it I mean the movie starts but it seems almost like the first 20 minutes were a different film it seems like you were watching part one and then you are introduced to these characters all over again mm. that they have They've become worn out. They're a little tired. They've been drinking for days. They're they're almost different people. And when you're reintroduced to them, it, it, it that's the perfection. I mean, once they get to the cabin until the end of the movie is some of the arguably, to me, most perfect fucking shit I've ever seen because it's capturing the truth. Mm. And what makes it even more baffling to me is Richard E. Grant, who plays with Nail, like never never drank. Never smoked. Bruce Robinson got him drunk, um, just to sh just, just to <laughs> inform his performance when they were shooting, and he was sick with every drink because he's allergic to alcohol. Fuck off, Daniel Day Lewis. We don't need Lawrence Olivier anymore. We have Richard E. Grant with Nail and I, and and that takes me back to my quote that Monty said: "Sometimes you just know you'll never play the Dane. Who needs to play the Dane when you could play with Nail? Like, I mean, and that's a reference to playing the the title role, fucking Hamlet, with Nail. That's Hamlet. I mean, he is the angry prince. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, I mean." For uh, for British nerds, that's the British nerd Hamlet. Richard E. Grant, um, 
wasn't the first choice, apparently. He was fired, I think, three times because Bruce Robinson thought he was fat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It apparently, he told him half of you's got to go. I think Daniel J. Lewis was uh, considered at one point as well. <laughs> of course, <laughs> a, a fucking and uh, uh, yeah, and um, Paul McGann was uh, was fired initially as well for being too scouse. He had to go away and learn to speak posh. I think Danny Brown was was the one that walked in perfectly. That he he mm. read the director's notes. He read the script. So he showed up in character, and he 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 did his nails purple, and he showed up in the velour, and he didn't have the accent. And it, it's it's remarkable. I, I would deeply suggest to our fans go fucking listen to Danny Brown talk mm. and then watch this or Wayne's World 2 and it's yeah. eh, I'm kissing the movie's ass <laughs> and it's not because of you like it's not because like oh we've got a new host on the show and it's his favorite movie I'm gonna kiss it if I thought it sucked I, I we would be having an argument and, and da- going against each other but I, I, I was fucking touched by the experience of watching this movie and it, like it's perfect the character itself, what he's playing is, I've met that guy a fucking million times. I know that guy personally. I could call him. I have like seven of that guy's phone mm. numbers, and they're all different people. Like, you've experienced <laughs> that. Like, it, it's just a force, and that's really what every character in this movie is. They, they aren't identities. They aren't characters. They're fucking forces, and you've, you've competed with them. You've experienced them in, in your life. They're type classes. They're everything. It's it's so absolutely encompassing, and mm. what makes it even better is it's such a whirlwind of drink that you're, you're, you're basked and bathed in alcohol while you delve into the deep minds of life and change and everything else. It's, it's rather perfect. I mean, they're they're like sort of archetypes, but they're very specific archetypes. But uh, but they're also like really fleshed out, but with minimal information. They're uh, these uh, wonderful contradictions. Oh, it's like the fucking Beatles said, "Man, you are here. We are here. We are all together." Yeah, see how they run like pigs from a gun. See how they fly. <laughs> it 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 really fits into. And the Beatles are pretty proper for this fucking. <laughs> George Harrison produced the movie, and that's why there is a very impromptu, randomly playing George Harrison written Beatles song in the movie. The soundtrack is great, but I mean, to me, the soundtrack is just fucking Hendrix. Did you catch the uh, the special consultant at the end? It's Ringo Starr under a pseudo- under his actual name. What did he consult? He just turned up on set to see George Harrison one time, and they gave him a credit. He's uh, he's credited as Richard Stan uh, Starkey, MBE. He just showed up and was like, "Yeah, this is what it's like being in the rain." <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is how much Britain sucks. Woo. <laughs> I I mean, you know, Stan Lee got more for less. I mean, come on. I guess you really can say that this this may be, in in my opinion, this may be the quintessential British movie. I mean, you really get a, a taste of England in oh, this yeah. movie. You you get it all. I mean, and and especially the scene where they're um they're they're eating breakfast. They haven't had food for a couple of days, and they they make a stew, and with Nell's just arguing, and he's yeah, I'm tired of carrots. I'm tired of stews with nothing <laughs> in it. We I, I crave meat. I crave flesh. And I says, well, there's black puddings in the stew. I don't care about fucking black puddings. I need flesh. Vegetables again. I'll be spouting bloody feelers soon. Must be 20,000 sheep out there on those volcanoes. We got a plate full of cats. There's black puddings in it. Black puddings are no good to us. 
I want something's flesh. You just, it's, it's, it's beautifully British, but I think it's incredibly relatable at the same time. I mean, haven't you ever gone on a ill-fated adventure with one of your friends and everything's gone wrong? You don't have any food, you don't have any fucking booze, you don't have anything. It's terrible. <laughs> you're using a couch cushion. You know, you, you're, it's life. Uh, their weekend in the cult country is, is the quintessential um, British weekend away. That's what you do. You go to a cabin in the country, it pisses down, and it sucks, and you're cold, and you're fucking miserable. Maybe you find a pub, and you get drunk. That's it. And who knows? Your gay uncle might try and rape you. <laughs> Uh, the, the the Uncle Monty plot, I, I think I mentioned, we're going to talk about that and then never did. The the character's sexuality plays into a con set up from Withnell, and eventually it, it really explodes into the movie where he has offered I to his Uncle Monty, and I... It, the, the, the character, it, what makes it so relatable is the anxiety and the fact that he... He doesn't want to say something wrong. He doesn't want to be rude. He just wants to fit in, or not even so much fit in. He just wants to appear and not be fucking bothered and just be a part of wherever he's at. He doesn't want to be perceived as a bad guy. You know, he gets really upset at the beginning of the movie where he's called a ponce and they immediately have to leave because of the perfumed boots. Uh, later in the film, he continuously says, I'm not from London. You know, we're just normal people. We're not from London. He just wants to fit in. He He, he just wants to enjoy the fucking holiday that they accidentally went on and doesn't know that he's been offered up as a prize to Uncle Monty. So you've got these two counteracting each other and they're they're literally dancing about and trying to make ends meet where I is dying inside and Monty thinks he's going to fuck. Like he thinks this is a perfect holiday and all of that kind of blows up in your face. <laughs> blows up. <laughs> just as poor Monty wished. But the, the that scene is maybe one of the most beautiful in the movie. You've got naked Uncle Vernon from Harry Potter trying to fuck Gollick from Alien 3, and it's it turns into being just the most poetic bullshit that comes out. And then the following scene, he runs into Withnail's bedroom and threatens to fucking kill him. And all of it just, it's vicious, it's prominent, it's in your face, but fuck, it's beautiful. It's just so fucking good. <laughs> you can't help it even the second time I saw the movie, I found myself quoting it. Like, I know the fucking dialogue now. It just clicks. It's just there. Yeah, and uh, I mean, like, and, and Monty's letter the next day is, is, is heartbreaking. You know, the poor guy. As an eavesdropper should, I should just leave in the night. So he fucking heard it. He heard the fact that it was a setup. He knows that, that, that his own nephew lied. Just And he probably could have told the truth. He probably just could have said, Uncle Monty, we want to go get drunk at your cottage for the week. And and the human nature that lies within is the duality between everything. Uh, I says to him, you're going to pay for this. You're going to suffer for what you did. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's it's like with Nell says, um, like free to those that can afford it, very expensive to those that can't. I don't know. I think that's that's the British class system. You have to, you have to bullshit. Well, he does say in that same sequence to I, you know, hitherto I never thought that you would seep to this level, that you feel bad. Aren't you being a, a little daft with this? You're, you, you feel bad about the situation, which lets you see who the character is without knowing anything about him, that they've done stuff like this before. They've never had a problem being cheeky or fucking people over or maybe even stealing from them or using them. 
And when he's even introduced to Danny, the only things I has to say about him are fairly negative. So the perception of class, uh, I'm, I have to eat my own words. It is There is a lot of politics in it. I'm a stupid fuck. <laughs> it's not the first time that we've come to this conclusion. Well, I mean, you know, like, I mean, like Monty's got all the best lines, particularly, uh, um, we live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in, shut on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour, and here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. But Danny says something very uh, relative at the end of the movie. They're, they're, they're sitting on the couch and they're smoking the massive joint, and he says, you know, the, the greatest, it's 90 days until the greatest era of mankind is ending, mm. and nothing is changing. They're selling hippie wigs at Woolsworth, and as presuming Ed has said, we failed to paint it black. And it's true. Look at look at what happened, not just in the 1960s, but even look in the last 10 years at, at, at all of our cultures all around the world. The, the, the most drastic fucking political changes we've lived through have happened. Brexit was absolutely huge. Ugh, Trump. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, look at some of the absolute monsters that exist and the way the world is changing. And then you go back and look at 1969, man. The Vietnam War is absolutely raging. One of the world leaders got shot in the fucking head a couple years beforehand. All of a sudden, we're racing the Russians to go into space. We're, we're invading random left in the United States, it is. Random left and right places. We're starting issues in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand. We're fucking things up everywhere. The UK is with <laughs> us. They, we're, I mean, we're, we're kind of hand in hand with that. Nixon administration is, is beginning to rear its ugly, terrible face. The Black Panther Party started, as I brought up at the beginning of the show. The cultural boom with bikers began. Uh, the Hell's Angels were all over the world. It was really just the, 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 the most chaotic but yet beautiful era, and, and the movie sparks and, and references this of all time. So, uh, we were going to fucking space. <laughs> now it's commonplace. We live in this weird, boring era where it's like, yeah, celebrities get to go to space. William Shatner went to space. It's fine. You, you can just buy a ticket. Then there was such excitement. There was... It wasn't even frivolity. It wasn't fear of the unknown. It wasn't xenophobia. But xenophobia did, I mean, obviously fucking exist. But in 1969, you've got to imagine how much had happened. We don't have anything near that era except new wars, new coups, new James Bond villains appearing like fucking Elon Musk every few weeks. There's just negativity then. God, it, it, it was just such an exasperatingly free era, and there was anything that you could do, and that it's coming to an end, and as the movie comes to an end, the, the, the class problems between everyone the in the UK, the United States, it all just seems somewhat trivial when Danny says it's just politics, isn't it? It just seems like it, it, it doesn't quite matter anymore. I never bought any hippie wigs. I bought a lot of wrestling figures and pick-and-mix sweets. Well, apparently 90 days to the end of the greatest decade of all time you could get a fucking hippie wig there but that's really the sentiment from a transition to what monty says to to what danny says it's what everybody feels it doesn't so much matter the class i mean i think especially what we're looking at the end of 1969 i think the rich the poor the commoners the the, the jamaicans that have come over and we're starting the very awesome sound system scene i think everybody felt the fucking same thing that it was just wet and miserable yeah well it's like anything isn't it is um i remember uh well being a sort of preteen into teen and 
again into music that was uh that was not really covered in the mainstream and then there was a bit of a a breakthrough a grunge and then Britpop which is a fucking stupid term but there you go um and and a few of the bands I like were sort of co-opted into these sort of uh media labels of you know to be sort of marketed them to the masses but you kind of felt all right about it for a little bit because it's like oh well you know at least everyone likes something that I don't hate and then uh you know that that kind of got sort of swept under the rug and we're back to the same old shit and that's kind of the process they're going through at the uh the end of with with now I think I think they expected something I think they I think most people everyone really with change with life in general you expect something you 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 go through a bad situation and you expect to have a different perception or as you age and you get older you don't think that you're going to be the exact same person that you were when you were 16 and and in your thoughts in your head that that monologue that inner dialogue doesn't really change when you're 89 you're going to have the same thoughts the same perception is when you were a, a, a child you you have gone through different stuff obviously you're a different person but that voice doesn't change who you are doesn't go away and you you think something monumental will happen you you think well the decades ending i've been through all this turmoil with my friend at the end of the film finally i learns that he has has gotten a, a terrific job he's gotten the lead role so everything's going to change he's not going to be living in this filth anymore he's not going to be wallowing around in his own fear and depression and sadness he's moving on but with nail is not and that's the decade ending it's anything changing and uh, it's life moving forward and it's a shame it it really is a shame but what what can you do you want something monumental to happen and what's it's just time nothing absolutely really changes and it's always gonna you know come back to uh <laughs> living in a land of uh, weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in shat on by Tories and shoveled up by labor you wake up every day and you just don't even feel like you're a part of society because society's some weird machine it, it it just has pieces for other pieces of metal and screws and bolts it has nothing for flesh it has nothing for identity or soul or or any sort of realism and you think something's going to happen but you you just live. Yeah, well, I mean, like, look at... Well, I mean, it's... I don't know, maybe it pales in comparison to, like, what you guys have gone through in the last few years. But, uh, I mean, look at the, the state of uh, our government right now. You've got, uh, like, an absolute fucking cartoon villain, Boris, finally being ousted but hanging on. And then the uh, the favorite is uh, Rishi Sunak, who's running on a platform of uh, let's fix the economy when it's the economy that he was fucking responsible for for the last two and a half fucking years. Well, there's a, a great deal of fear, especially for me as a citizen, that the, the last four years compared to the four years before that, sure, they weren't as bad, but because of the actions of the people in charge for the last four years, we're certainly going to return to the cunts. There's no option. The people are going to vote for the cunts, and that's what's going to happen. And we're going to probably return to a drastically scary, worse fascist state. And it that's it. I mean, it, we've transitioned now from With Nail and I to The Watchmen, because that's <laughs> fucking what's happening in the United States. 
it's going to get terrible and it's it sounds so hopeless but the times will change people will come and go from your life they'll disappear they'll fade they'll maybe re-enter but it sounds nihilistic and i don't mean it to be in the least bit but things change but they don't you you might change you might change as a person but that inner monologue who you are what's in your head it will remain the same people will come and go politicians will change rights will be taken away from you and you will always just kind of exist it, it it's not really a hopeful ending it's not really a hopeful movie but i don't think that's the fucking point carrying on that theme do you think do you think what we're seeing is 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 things sort of things getting better like fucking uh like by tiny fucking increments but then contracting as they go so so the progress is barely noticeable i mean like i mean like sh- sure like yeah i mean there's a so much horrendous fucking political stuff going on now and uh the world seems uh, a pretty fucking dark place but then the way we're uh sort of talking around a lot of the uh the points in this movie like with the characters in there i don't know like like sure like 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 mainstream politics is becoming a fucking horror show but at the same time like you know everyone's general awareness um of just being fucking nicer to everyone is sort of increasing like even if like the amount of fucking buttholes who said oh fucking woke agenda and all that shit is fucking well increasing too but is it though because those are the same sort of cunts that would have just been fucking cunts in the first place so i think it's sort of swings and roundabouts too i think uh you get the good and bad and the really seems like what I've been trying to say about with Nail and I is, is you get the good and bad and it's given to you all together. Right now we're living in this nightmare. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the UK. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States. It doesn't matter if you're in Canada. It's a nightmare. Everything, especially with COVID and people's reaction to COVID and not believing in it and not doing anything to help. You see, you see how not selfless people are. Nobody cares about each other. Nobody gives a flying fuck about each other. They wouldn't do the least bit to help their neighbor. Fuck you. I ain't gonna get no goddamn shot. I'm gonna fucking do it. And look, I'm fucking with you. They don't even release what's in the shot. It sounds fucking scary as hell. But hey, plague's killing everybody. Everybody. Everybody's getting the plague and they're dying. Get the fucking shot. We're fucking full of fucking vaccines for god the fuck knows what anyway that's that's how how come we don't have fucking polio tell me what you got when you were a child what what <laughs> I, vaccine? I don't know. what was in that shit what what was in it a couple of years ago i was working at a fucking hospital in florida and and they they offered vaccines and it was free and i was like really give me them all i don't fucking know what they are they were vaccines fuck it maybe i'll die when i'm 60 from some fucking weird heart failure and if i do my family will get some money out of it but you know what i'm not gonna get polio fucking stick it in me all of it fucking right now come on put some drugs in it too yeah, i don't care man. really what it is just just do G- anything give me all the microchips you cunts yeah i don't care fucking maybe i'll be able to pick up better wi-fi at this point i don't fucking care but uh, most, some people, not all of them, many, many Americans, they cared, and they were very mad about it because it took away from their rights, their these make-believe rights that they don't actually know they have or, or, or what they're aware of. People don't care about each other. And you, you're, you're watching and you're experiencing this movie. It, it, it is 
it seems trivial, but even the the least bit, like they they go back and forth with each other of what their chores are, and there's an understanding. There's no argument. There is a, a slight care for the community and and not so much, the community is a bad term, but for who these people are and the community that they've created for themselves. And you you look at what referencing kind of what you were bringing up here and how ugly and how terrible people are. There is good. I mean, there are good things to find out of this wretched era. And, and... Trying to link it to the movie. I mean, like, Widnell and I are in a fucking shitty situation, but they're very good friends. I mean, does it really bother you? Does it Does it take that much out of your life and your time to show the least bit of kindness to a stranger and, and even prevailing when, when Monty leaves the letter? After this heartbreaking scene where you 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 take the comedy in it that he is a, a very large aggressive man naked attempting to take I that he is under the belief that I is into this and wants to do this and that he he doesn't want to let his true self come forward. So this guy's about to get raped because of a lie that his his best friend told and he finds his way out of it and the letter may be next to the end of the film, the most heartbreaking thing because of the sincerity of the person, the absolute truth, the devastating truth is kindness. It's so unfamiliar, I think, to all of us that when you are presented a scene in a movie even that shows absolute kindness, it's heartbreaking mm. because we live in such a weird, cold place. Fucking hardware was a good reference because that's really yep. everyone's community. Nobody likes each other and the world's I'm on fire. back to... Um... Uh, Bruce Robinson basing that character on uh, Zeffirelli and, and he's showing kindness to him despite what he experienced by, you know, making this, this character relatable. And it, it's such an awkward situation we're presented with because obviously what he's trying to do is wrong, but under the the situation that, that he's in, is it wrong? I mean, he, obviously, yes, you, if somebody says no, you can't keep pushing, but the belief that he has, has been presented this entire time, it's just such a terrible situation, but the communication, the way it's handled, it's just life. It's, it's the point that I've kept pushing is sometimes you move away from people. Sometimes memories become these distant, faded things that don't even seem to exist anymore, and all of these things happen. All, all of these emotions have actually happened at one point. They were all so pure, they were all so lively, and then they just go away. Yeah, uh, and like you said, this film is a time capsule. It's uh, it's, it's a record of a imaginary experience for, uh, for these characters, and uh, it uh, works on that kind of level. It serves as a time capsule, but it's not... It's not quite like, um, I'll give a comparison to Dazed and Confused. Uh, okay, sorry, uh, Time Capsule is not quite where I meant. I mean, Time Capsule in terms of, uh, it's like, uh, what do they call it? Like like, uh, like in a TV show, it's like a bottle episode. It's like, it's a few characters just, just going through some stuff. You know, just it's a hangout movie. Well, even with something like uh, Days and Confused might have, have been a fairly apt reference. You've got a lot of similarities between these two movies because you're going back to a different era and you're supposed to feel and have some, some connectivity to, to this era. And the big difference is Days and Confused really is attached to when it took place. It is the 1970s. It is how uh, what these people were doing then and how people lived and what graduating high school that year in this small fucking town in Texas was like. But with Nail and I has uh, a, a time capsule essence, like I really feel it. Yes, it's 1969, but it also, 
it's 1969, but it's the fucking 80s as well. I mean, yeah. you, you you can feel the you know that kind of dark, dreary, uh, the Cure, the Smith, Susie Sue. <laughs> it's got that feeling, but what you it's it's what what makes it fully timeless is the characters, is what they're going through because it could have happened in 69, 1869, 1769, 1669. What they're going through, the deb- and it's not just the debauchery, but a lot of it is the debauchery, just the, 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 the drunken shenanigans, this misery. It all seems so important. Just just about feeling rudderless and, and lost, but at the same time, like, kind of having fun with it. <laughs> I, I think uh, Days and the Confused is an apt comparison, though, because uh, with Neil and I, the characters are looking at the end of the 60s with dread. Uh, well, certainly Danny is, anyway. In Days and Confused... They're looking at the end of the seventies with hope that the there's a I can't remember the line, but I think Pink says uh, like there's gonna be better yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. We're, gonna, <laughs> it's, we're gonna progress. The world's gonna be a mm. better place. I, what, what's uh, unique with that though is is you you got to look at the characters and with Nail and I, I don't think with Nail was even ready for the sixties. Mm. He wasn't. He 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 didn't ever fit in. It was a dread dreaded era for him. He dressed like it's still the forties, or not even that. God, he dressed like the eighteen sixties. Nah, dude, he he just dressed like a fucking posh dude. Well, it was all uh, in shambles. You know what I mean? He 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 had this image of himself, but it was of a of a prime actor that mm. he was. They 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 reference Redgrave mm. or Van- the Redgraves a lot. They they reference Gilgood Gil Good and uh, you know the likes of. Uh, Ian McKellen. I, I I feel he dressed and presumed, and he he's his hair is slicked back. He's not really a hippie, you know. It's yeah. 1969. He's not a hippie. He's not yeah. a mod. He's he's not. Where whereas whereas I is is um from a lower caste background and a bit more connected to that world. And he seems, you know, I wouldn't say he's a hippie either, or, or any. He's not a stereotype. He's not part of anything. He's just a fellow existing in the in this world as we all are. But with Neil has this. Prompt, you know, I'm an actor. I'm a trained actor. I'm handsome. I have to look a certain way. <laughs> I'm a trained actor. Reduce the stakes of a bum. He has these airs. You know, he perceives himself as being this incredibly well dressed, very posh, very f- fontelroy, dandy looking guy, and he's just a bum. Entitled. He's is he's, he's entitled because of his background. And it's like the whole, oh, this suit. This is the finest suit that was ever made. The only cut that you've ever had was over your appendix. You know, he <laughs> he he takes such pride in himself, but he's a fucking bum. He's not even a bohemian. He he's he's dirty. He's greasy. He looks like he's fucking dying. He doesn't eat. He probably smells terribly. He's chain smokes constantly. But his perception is what matters because he's a fucking actor. That's what he cares about that yeah 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 well i mean like look at fucking oliver reed he was drunk most of his fucking life but he's an incredible fucking actor jesus christ the devils my god that's one of the best fucking movies ever made one of britain's greatest living character actors mr oliver reed welcome to the show or i should say uh ollie really shouldn't i now that's nice no in when i was in the army my name was corporal reed two three three two four five three three what's that <laughs> bird shit <laughs> oh, so you still got the old tattoo from your national service days. Most things I have in my life include, including the assuasions. Mm. I think I'm still wearing your demob suit here. Yes, as well. we're going to be. Well, well that's apparent. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, throughout your life, you've had a reputation, you know, in like films as being a bit of a rebel and a bit of a brawler and everything. When did you first get that reputation? I suppose uh, I grabbed that when I was learning. <laughs> 
when I was <laughs> when I was learning a mo a mass a mat a marmas a martis a mant. I love they love pugilo. A lot of the things, a lot of the things that happened in a very private school that I lived. I went to a school that was full of dunces, and they suddenly started to. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, let me let me tell you something. When you went to a private school it, during the war, it was a school whose father was not dead, or he was full of counsel. Mm. And that's that's really what I, I, I felt watching this. Is, oh, it's Oliver Reed. I mean, this this is the character, but there's the difference. Is is Oliver Reed fucking tried though? He went and got drunk and didn't wa. I don't know. He didn't wallow. Did he though? Did he though? Or is it just luck? Or, you know, just like Oliver Reed had better auditions than Widnell. I guess it comes down to the semantics of, of what luck could be. But judging by, I mean, just me, like judging by watching Oliver Reed, I think there was something more. I mean, he, he, he showed up, I guess. That's the big difference. I mean, that's what I mean by trying. You got to actually do it. Mm. It's interesting on that point that uh, it's I that succeeds. Uh, being the sort of uh, lower class guy and with Nell that's stuck being a bum. Vivian Mackerel. Looking at him, he had a couple film roles. He did a few things, but he he never really progressed from that point. So just trying to argue between luck and better auditions, he, he made a movie with Ian McKellen. He made a, I think Severin released it, did a, a horror picture, I think five actual screen roles. Which movie did he do with McKellen? So yes, I'm entirely wrong. He didn't make a film with Ian McKellen, but he starred in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning with Ian McKellen with John Neville at the Nottingham Playhouse. Uh. His films were not so much films. He did the TV miniseries of Les Miserables. He played Marius. He did 30-minute theater, one episode in 1969. Play for Today, a TV series, played a character named Tramp. Ghost Story is the film where he plays Duller. Uh, then his Ghost, final role. Ghost Story, the 1980-ish one with Mary Steenburgen in. 74. Oh, okay. Oh, that's that. That's probably uh, BBC Ghost Story for Christmas then, is it? Anthony Bate, Marion Faithful, uh, Larry Dan. Several old college friends converge at a mansion ostensibly for a pleasant reunion. Talbot, the most <laughs> easygoing oh, of the man. bunch. Yeah, it's... It happened in a haunted mansion in 1930. A lovely summer. Idyllic, you might have called it. Three young men out for a weekend shooting. They didn't know the dark secret of the house which lay in store for them. They were soon to find out. If you don't stop that crying, I'll put you in a box! You like it in blood? In a box! In a box! In a box! From Britain's youngest production house, Stephen Weeks' classic motion picture, 
Ghost Story. Starring Marianne Faithful as Sophie. I mean, it, it sounds like a typical British thing. Marianne Faithful, though, that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, that kind of shit. That just brought up something into my mind. Hold on a second. Uh, I'm glad I thought of this. I really wanted to talk about it and fucking forgot till now. I it's it, This is a great segue. Bringing up Marianne Faithful reminds me of a movie. It came out in 1993, and it's called When Pigs Fly, and it stars Marianne Faithful and Alfred Molina, and it's a really good counterpoint, I think, to With Nail and I, to even a good transition of watch with Nail and I, watch it again, and drink, and then watch When Pigs Fly. It's by a director, uh, it's, it's by a writer and director named Sarah Driver. She wrote and directed this, and it's about this guy named Marty who's just kind of With Nail and I. He's a failed musician, a failed artist, not so much a piece of shit, but he lives in squalor and is a depressed guy. Life isn't so good. He hangs out at this bar every single day, one day at the bar, he ends up acquiring some furniture, and the furniture is connected to the spirits of an old woman and a little girl. The old woman's played by Marianne Faithful, and the whole ride going on that movie is dealing with change, dealing with life, dealing with love. It, really a great counterpoint, because this movie, with Nail and I, you, you have everything. And as I was saying earlier, love doesn't have to be romantic, and it does. You don't always have to like the person you love. And you look at at what's going on in the situation. It really is a love story and a breakup story, and and life. It encompasses absolutely everything. And when pigs fly, it's it's just this. I I don't mean morose in a, a bad term, but it it's this kind of morose. It's, it's a very British feeling movie. It's very gray. It's it's very rainy. It takes place at pubs. It's just this uneventful story. And and I think the point, what makes it so beautiful, is that stories don't always have to have a fucking full point. It's the emotion behind it. And you 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 delve so deep into what matters. And well, who are they? Who are these characters? What goes on? With with Nell and I, you're allowed to fantasize. Maybe his role doesn't do good. I could have just gotten one good starring role and then faded into ambiguity and done nothing else. Maybe With Nail became famous. You have so many options because you have the potential of yourself. You can look within yourself and wonder, am I just going to sit down and lay in the squalor or am I going to go get me a leading role? Or This tangent has gone and taken different shapes. But yeah, check out When Pigs Fly, 1993. That's a movie. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie. Also, um, like... Oh, this is quite dangerous because I'm about to recommend a film I haven't seen for about 25 years. But um, uh, Bruce Robinson's follow-up to With Nail and I, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, also starring Richard E. Grant, uh, where he's an advertising executive and he grows an extra head, which uh, slowly takes over his his body and uh, it, it indulges his... Uh, worse more capitalistic impulses and uh it, it's pretty great how are we getting on with the pimple creep just a fine tune i'll be through over the weekend how to get ahead in advertising my name's barbara simmons and i'm a biochemist but at night i'm a woman rule number one be creative in every situation. I recommend a new product because I make it. What do you want? 
Never lose your perspective. Compared to this, dandruff was a birthday present. So is breath. You're raising your voice, darling. Don't bring home your work. You're under tremendous stress. I know exactly what I'm doing now. Get his Valium. Follow these simple rules. You're so run down, you've got to boil yourself. And you will get ahead. Are you handsome? Dennis thinks he's got a talking boil. What? I looked at it in the bathroom mirror, and it's burnt in it. Just look at it in the mirror. Tell me what you see. It's got a moustache. Who are you? What do you want? I am your better half. He's overworked and nearly had a breakdown. But he's much better now. Oh, you're going to have a monster on top of you. Ah, stay away from me! Monster! I think her husband's completely bananas. I personally would be up all night with a revolver. I'm going to sell them the idea that boils are beautiful. Wonderful. Wonderful. To boils, acne and blackheads. How to get ahead in advertising. The career where two heads are better than one. Shut up. Now, the unique thing about the end of this episode is it's going to bring down Bruce Robinson as a villain. Because he is the, the guy that introduced Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Oh shit! He is the Rum Diaries. Yeah, he he did the Rum Diaries film, um, which I I I actually have never seen. It's I, pretty good. You know, I've talked about this a few times before. I'm I might have given it away talking about him earlier. I'm a really big Hunter Thompson fan, uh, hmm. and it, it's <laughs> I just want to say as being a big Hunter Thompson fan, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is my least favorite thing. The prick wrote, just just to say what type of Thompson fan I am of his. I, I read Rum Diary when I was like 16, 17, and uh, it, it makes sense why Bruce Robinson directed it, because it's an incredibly similar story, and it's the only piece of fiction that Hunter ever really wrote, but it, it's it's the birth of gonzo journalism, and to define that, gonzo journalism is half fiction, half reality, but that's not to say the fiction didn't actually take place, it's just heavily exaggerated, it's rock and roll. That's all mm. gone. It's rock and roll journalism. It's the best way I could describe it. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, that took place. Maybe not the way the book says it does, but it happened, kind of, to that extent. Hunter Thompson got out of the U.S. Air Force, and he was a journalist, a sports writer, and he went to Puerto Rico, and he was living in Puerto Rico for a few years, and it was just... A, a wash era of his life. It was it, nothing happened, but everything happened. He got drunk and was fucked up for days and days and years and months, and things didn't work out. And he experienced some heartbreak, and he met friends that you lost and never experienced again. It's all the the exact same thing that we've been running through for the last hour, two hours, however long this fucking show ends up being. And <clears throat> I I had such a clear vision. Like, I, I read this book, because I, I, I got into Thompson like everybody else did. I read Fear and Loathing and was like, oh, yeah, you know, drugs, that's cool. And read Rum Diary directly after that, and, you know, uh, Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, Hey Rube, all that other stuff is, is deeply political. But there is something so soft and vulnerable and beautiful about what is presented in the Rum Diary. I've just never had the heart to see the movie, because my image and what I have... The movie in my head, I think, is superior, and I've I, and I'd like American yeah, Gods. Yeah, 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 maybe. Um, I I think uh, well, uh, it's it's more of a Hollywood movie than uh, than Withnell is, for sure. It has uh, it it has a conclusion, 
where uh, you know. I think with Nell and I has a conclusion though. I mean, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it has a similar conclusion that uh, you know you're left up in the air as to where the characters could go next. But with the Rum Diary, you're left with the the Depp character set up that okay, now he's learned all this stuff and he's going to go ahead and be Hunter S. Thompson and play, you know, do all his <laughs> do all his crazy stuff and be ace. Like, uh, whereas, like, with Widnell, you don't know what the fuck he's going to do. Probably nothing. <laughs> I think it's a bit fucked they gave Johnny Depp hair in that movie. It seems, <laughs> seems like the cruelest thing. You're playing a Hunter S. Thompson character and you had a full head of hair. That guy lost his hair at, like, nine. Come on, shave your head for the fucking <laughs> role. I, I, with me, it's 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 heartbreaking. The end of with Nail and I, and it, but it's such a a beautiful heartbreak. It, it's it and it it's reflective of the weather that it's raining and it's thundering outside and it's just washing everything away. It's taking all of that earth. It's taking, uh, you know, the the Blade Runner soliloquy. All these things lost in rain. I think uh, that mon- closing monologue. It's it's up there with Roy Batty. I mean, it, 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 it's such a comparison because everything that he's saying it, it, it is the emotion. Roy is dying. Every experience, every beautiful thing, unfathomable. The fight that he has had to exist and, and get to where he has gotten, people would never understand, and it's just going to disappear. And all the, the strife, all the woe, all the worry, everything, we finally learn with, with Nail at the end, it doesn't matter. Sex doesn't matter. The fame doesn't matter. The fortune doesn't matter. He just wants to be. And he will never be because he can't. He just can't. Uh, the the difference with Roy Batty is he's kind of reflective at the end, and he's like, "Oh well, that's that." And I've had these experiences, and it, and uh, and that's it. Whereas uh, Hamlet and, by extension, Withnail are uh, are more of the uh, "this is all fucked" <laughs> kind of persuasion. Well, Roy wanted something specifically. I don't know if Withnail wanted anything. Roy wanted more life. That's the only thing he wanted. I think in that final monologue, Roy's kind of at peace, and that's the whole reason he saves Deckard. Well, that's. Uh, I guess it's it's the events that lead up to what happens in their life because Roy had two opportunities to not opportunities. He had two thoughts to to take when he learns that there is no is no more life. He could wallow in it and take revenge, and he could move on. And he does kind of both from column A and column B because he he yep. kills his father, he crushes Tyrell's head, but he moves on. And there's sort of an immaculacy in that it's kind of like um you know being christened or, or or baptized or something he was baptized in the fire of his own death and his own blood he realized that the futility is, is is not going to do anything there is no compromise that you've just got to finish what you've started as to yep. where with nail never started anything there's nothing for him yeah, to finish yeah. He doesn't know what to do. You know, he was born into this privileged world. And but you can look at the character so differently because you don't have to even look at the privileged aspect. He's just fucking a miserable cunt. You don't have to be rich. <laughs> you know, you, anyone can be yeah, this yeah. way. And and I relate heavily to 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 both of these characters, mm. not not Roy Batty, but with Nail and I. If I related to anyone from Blade Runner, it's probably uh that guy that Shane smokes cigarettes while doing the test. Gaff. No, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. Guy. Oh, the the uh, the first test of Holden, the guy that gets shot through the wall. Yeah, that's me. That's mm. 
The guy that smokes <laughs> like 14 cigarettes in one scene. That That's probably me. Because I'm not a Blade Runner, but that's a different story for another day. You you really can see the, the sorrow. You don't have to be some, some privileged fuck to understand where it's coming from. It's just not good enough, but what is? And the, that's the real difference between the two characters is the, the perception of what is good enough. I has taken to terms with that. Yeah, well, um, I might not ever be what I want to be, and things might not be great, and it's all rainy and shitty and dreary, but I'm, I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm, I'm going to continue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Where with Nail is, ah, oh, fuck it, everything is dreary. He's Morrissey. It's fucking Robert Smith versus Morrissey. <laughs> yes, totally is. <laughs> fucking Robert Smith all the way. Fucking all. He just wants to to wallow in his misery. He doesn't want to make it better, and he has. The- yeah, Robert Smith is gonna fucking punch through his m- misery. Sometimes with some terrible pop singles, but sometimes with some fucking brilliant albums. Every day can be like Sunday, but you've got to do something about that. You know, turn it into a fucking <laughs> Thursday. Turn it into a Wednesday. Carpe fucking diem, and and, and the ending is is incredibly heartbreaking because we are revealed after all this time that wow. He's beautiful. He's he's absolutely beautiful. Wow. He he he's everything that I want to be, that you want to be. He has all of this potential and he'll he'll never do anything about it because every day is like Sunday. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't want it to change. He enjoys the atmosphere because and we see with the character, he loves attention. He loves being being. That's it. He loves being. It's it's the the ride. It's the party. Uh, Hunter Thompson said about his best friend in the world, Oscar Zeta Acosta, the character of Dr. Gonzo. Too weird to live, too rare to die. That's it. I mean, you you just exist sometimes and you meet these forces. And they're not they're not for this earth. <laughs> somebody like Withnail, somebody like Vivian Mackerel was not for this earth. They're an alien, they're a force that that came here and their art existed, and whether it be good or bad. Art doesn't always have to be a movie or a song or a painting. It's sometimes motion. It's sometimes the energy and the existence of these strange, chaotic beasts. <laughs> that was kind of poetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to clap. I should fucking write that one down like shit. <laughs> <laughs> you should put that in a podcast. Well, that's some song lyrics, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I saw this fucking movie three days ago, man. Just, just three days ago. It's however many Guinness later. We we've done something tonight. Mm, this is like uh, you put this on YouTube as uh, Whitnell ending explained. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if I'm fucking explaining anything. And and I guess as an ending statement, something to try and wrap us up here. Obviously, I'm no fucking expert. I'll give you an expertise here as our foreign correspondent because it's a fucking British movie and (laughs) you're a British (laughs) person. But it's not... yeah, it, it's it's seeped in the UK. It is it is definitely seeped in English. But there's just so much more to it to me, and I I, I couldn't help. I, I just think it's beautiful. I think the experience, the movie itself, it's traumatic. It is hysterical. It it has some aspects of just absolute real horror, not not movie horror, but. God, what do you do? I mean, it, that last scene, you, you got to think of both of them. One of them's walking off to the train and, and, and their thoughts and their perception of the world moving and saying goodbye, and then the other one walking home sadly. At some point in our lives, we're, we're always one or the other. And 
it's magnificent. I, I, I love when I feel something. I love being able to feel something and be able to appreciate that. And, and Bruce Robinson's film with Nail and I, man, if you don't feel something, that's fine. But I'm really thankful I did. Yeah, it's like possession with jokes. Although possession has jokes too. How fast can you rock on a rocking chair? Possession can be a comedy. I mean, it, it, all of it's funny itself. Relationships, life, I think that's what makes the beauty. Is, I was saying this earlier in the show, I don't want to call this a comedy because I don't think it's expressly supposed to be funny. I think it's life. That life isn't supposed to be funny either, but, but God, aren't there some moments where you just laugh when you're not supposed to? Doesn't the pressure and anxiety rise so much that you, you can't help but see some light in the darkness, and I think with Nail and I is is absolutely the light in the darkness. Every day can be a bad day if you want it to be, but there's got to be at least one moment, one second, one fucking microsecond of good. You can't have lived an entire life filled with bad, and if you had, men or women, I don't enjoy them either. I mean, you're with Nail. You have nothing else to say but quote Hamlet at the end of the day and cry <laughs> into your bottle. So the introduction to Linus Fitness Center joining Death by DVD, we called it an inebriation dedication, but we, we kind of just covered a thousand different subjects. This, this episode itself, I think this is the inebriation dedication. If there ever was a better movie to sit down and get trashed and watch, it, it's 100% with Nail and I. And I hope, at least as a contrast... Yeah, if you didn't enjoy the movie, if you've seen it before, maybe you can listen to this episode, watch it again, find something out of it, at least look at your own experiences. I think that's what, what makes this movie tremendous, is dealing with yourself and looking within these characters and trying to find a piece of you or a piece of your past that might lay within them. And that's the experience, that's the ride. You might not relate to it, and that's fine. I've, I've said that re repeatedly throughout this episode. You don't have to fucking relate to everything. It's, it's always refreshing, it's always fun when it clicks with you, but hey, you know, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just the ride. Sometimes you have to find your neutral space. You've gotten a rush, and it'll pass, and you just need to be seated. And that's with Nail and I. It's a rush, it'll pass, and you need to be seated. And if you don't like it, maybe you're a terrible cunt. Marcy, you terrible cunt! If you're hanging on a rising balloon you're presented with a difficult decision. You can let go before it's too late, or you can hang on and keep getting higher, posing the question, how long can you keep a grip on the rope? They're fucking selling hippie wigs in Woolsworth, man. 
the greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And as presuming Ed has so consistently pointed out, we have failed to paint it black. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. You have been listening to the Linus Fitness Center, the Linus Fitness Center, and Dirty Harry Sullivan. This is Death by DVD. You'll hear from us next time. You got the lighter fluid? I'm out of something to drink. I got some antifreeze. Yeah, check your toolbox for more. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. It's the most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestic old roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, pagan of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no women neither. No women neither.
DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. You have done something to your brain. You have made it high. If I lay 10 mils of diazepam on you, it will do something else to your brain. It will make it low. Why trust one drug and not the other? That's politics, isn't it? Drugged onions. 